just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week, my guest is the food historian and writer Annie Gray, whose new book is called Victory in the Kitchen, The Life of Churchill's Cook. And before you go, it's another book about Winston Churchill, please shoot me now. She has found a new angle on the great man by not writing directly about the great man at all, but about his tummy and what went into it and who supplied it. Annie, welcome. Start by telling me, who was Georgina? Georgina Landemar was born Georgina Young. She was born in 1882 in rural Hertfordshire and she had a very, very average life on paper, which became less and less average as she grew up. So she went into service, which was the biggest employer of women at the time and really the biggest employer, especially women of her class. She started as a nursemaid. She then became a scullery maid, which again, so on, so forth, they all do that. Except kind of actually they don't, because most girls went into service at quite a low level. They went into small households of only one or two servants. And she started right at the beginning in a house of probably about 15, 16, maybe even 20 servants, so already quite unusual. I think you said there was a whole strata thing of servants that... If you were in it for a career, mm. you had to shoot for a household that had like six or more. Exactly. Or you yeah. really wanted a big house. 75% of, of servants worked in households of one or two people. It's one of the big sort of misnomers of service history. People think, oh, domestic servant. And they have this kind of idea of a Mrs. Patmore style person bobbing and curtsying in a huge country house. <laughs> Most people worked in middle class households. So when you walk around any city in Britain and you get those beautiful Georgian terraced houses that have got little tiny windows in the roof and probably a basement area at the bottom those are the households most servants worked in and they would have been one of one two or three servants so to go into a household with six in the kitchen which is what Georgina did you're looking at a much bigger household and those are the filthy rich people who can afford to treat servants well and where you do get career progression so she progressed up slowly from number six number five etc etc and made cook when she was 25 Uh, and that was in again a very wealthy household all new money all the households she worked for and she ended up as cook with her own kitchen staff ahead of her and a great great life having done what she wanted and then she got married two years later but didn't really leave service she married a French chef Paul Landemar hence Georgina Landemar he was older than her father and had been married already his wife had died six children yes yeah and his uh, his wife had died about a month before he married Georgina so they must have known each other before I cannot you draw a delicate veil over that well it's because there's no evidence and as a historian I'm obviously I've you have to extrapolate a bit, you have to empathise with your people, your characters, you have to draw conclusions based on the evidence that's out there and sometimes there's nothing solid but you can say with a fair degree of certainty that this must have been what happened based on everything else you know. But although there were family legends about what happened between Paul and Georgina, none of them seemed to have necessarily much basis in fact so the family legend is that Paul worked at the Ritz that he met Georgina working at the Ritz and that he then divorced his wife after a fight with knives in the kitchen except he never worked at the Ritz and he certainly wasn't the head chef at the Ritz and there weren't any women working at the Ritz so he couldn't have met Georgina at the Ritz because we know her career trajectory and it certainly didn't involve the Ritz and there may have been a fight with knives but there may just have been strong words these things become bigger and bigger and bigger as they go through and he certainly didn't divorce his wife because she died of a 
mixture of things. I think the coroner was hedging his bets when he wrote the death certificate. But what we can say is that he definitely married Georgina in a registry office a month after his wife died and that they went on to work together as a team, as a catering team throughout the First World War and all the way through the 1920s and early 30s. Yes, because we don't, I mean, she doesn't get to Churchill until quite late on and actually... A whole, a large part of the book, which to me is completely fascinating, is about that kind of pre-war, yeah. the food scene, and the, I mean, actually having a French French chef as a husband. Oh, it you know, was it was the a good career background move. is a great career move. <laughs> yes, because as you put, I mean, you've got a lovely expression. I think you say it's the period possibly of the forty years of the silliest food in English oh, history. Edwardian food. I mean, it's. I think the Edwardian era is one that's quite hard to look at without knowing what it ended in. So we know that there was the First World War and, you know, even the Titanic disaster, I think, is given this extra resonance by the fact that the First World War is on the horizon. You cannot read about that era without knowing it's going to crash and burn in the most hideous way possible. But they didn't know. But they didn't know, and it was very silly, and the food was extraordinarily awful. I mean, I'm sure it tastes... Well, I've cooked the recipes. A lot of it does taste very, very good, but especially the kind of nouveau riche cuisine, the stuff that Georgina would have been specialising in as somebody working pretty much exclusively for new money. It's just endless stupidity. I mean, you can't possibly put a tongue on the table. Churchill's milieu, so old money, you would have had your tongue on the table, just a tongue, which you'd boiled for three or four hours, you'd skinned. You might put a paper rough round the bottom. That's about as froof as it gets. But the people Georgina's cooking for, and a lot of the people Churchill at that point was socialising with, you get your tongue, you boil it for three hours, you skin it, and then you pass it through a wire sieve using a wooden mallet. And when you've passed it through a sieve, you mix it with aspic jelly and you mix it with a veloute sauce and a few bits of herbs and spices and seasoning and probably something patent that you've bought from a shop which has got hardcore branding all over it and then you put it into a tongue mould and then you set it and then you turn it out and then you glaze it with a veloute sauce that's been mixed with aspic jelly and then you decorate it with tiny, tiny, tiny bits of vegetable that have been cut out with tiny, tiny cutters (laughs) having been boiled and sliced first all by hand and then you put a paper rough around it but the paper rough might be made out of something else anyway and then you go on and then by the time you've done this you think no wonder you had to have a staff of six in the kitchen and also you kind of think and no wonder to some extent the world crashed and burned because a culture that can turn that out there is a kind of feeling that really really yeah yeah i mean there's a description somewhere that there's a recipe that says you know put the cake into a hair mold yeah, a mould in the shape of a hair because of course every household had a mould in the shape of a hair they did if they know? were cooking at that level um, it's one of the things you see you go to country houses and you see these ranks of jelly moulds as everyone calls them all lined up on dresses they're not jelly moulds they're just culinary moulds and by the late Edwardian period if you could mould it you moulded it and if you couldn't mould it, you had to go at moulding it. So cakes were all moulded. Jellies, of course, were moulded. They were easy. Blamanges. Potted meats were moulded. Pies were moulded in pitons. And you had this whole host of moulds that we've lost largely now. Certainly in terms of country house visiting, you won't see these because they're very small and they tend to fall into people's pockets. So even if they are on display, they have to be very, they very carefully around in second-hand shops, don't they, they- you get a lot of ice cream garnishing moulds in second-hand shops, the pewter ones that sort of open and close with a rather satisfying thud. And those can come in all shapes and sizes. I mean, I've got one in the shape of a potato, but it's supposed to be made of ice cream. Um, but the tiny little <laughs> copper ones you get... I mean, for goodness sake, you get things with crossed snooker cues that are designed to be done in, in effectively blancmange, dyed in different colours with your patent food colourings that you can buy at the time, with your patent food essences. And they're just designed to garnish something that's been passed through a sieve 
alive and then dyed green. It's if it looks like nature, actually, you can't do Heston it. Heston Blumenthal was very retro rather than futuristic. Yeah, I mean, his food tasted, I think, better than some of the stuff in the Edwardian period. Some of it, as I said, is amazing, but there is a point where you do think this may just be style over substance. I mean, do you, how many of these old recipes have you cooked through? Because you must have, you, you've clearly cooked through... Some of Georgina's dishes. Yes. Many of Georgina's When I was writing the book, we basically lived in the 1920s and then the 30s and then the 40s for the year that I was writing it. So I cooked my way through both her published cookery book, but also more than that, the manuscript that she used to draw upon for the recipes that she eventually published. Because there's quite a lot of differences between her manuscript, which was written in the 30s, and the published cookbook in the 50s. But more than that, I mean, I've been doing this now for what? 10 15 years and I've cooked my way through an awful lot of recipes from the past so I worked for a long time in costume and in a Victorian site and we cooked in 1881 so I've cooked a lot of stuff from that era I've done lots of Georgian recipes too but I do have this sort of sneaking love for Edwardian food because it's so stupid because there comes a point where you are brushing colour into the bottom of a mould or syringing a jelly to try and get exactly the right colour in the right place and then the next day you're ripping the skin off a hair or something and it's also so much a mixture of utter viscerality and then really intricate work that you do... There's a real sense of artistry and also science coming together at that point, which, of course, there is in any cookery. But that particular period for me is endlessly fascinating. Was it when, I mean, I think you say somewhere, is it Blenheim that you said the the standard dinner would be 17 (laughs) courses? Yeah, it was excessive even for that (laughs) era. Most people really only went for sort of six or seven courses. Queen Victoria had, I think, uh, nine courses plus dessert, which is always implicit in menus rather than being written. And there would also have been a sorbet in the middle of that, say, okay, 10 courses. I mean, who's counting by that stage? And so she would have sort of learnt on the job, but, but obviously there's an enormous amount of technical skill here. And one of the weird things is that her recipes, as you describe them, you know, when she came to write her cookery book at the end of her life, she was producing, you know, she, she was had to be told, you know, weigh and measure. Because, like, you know, all those old-fashioned recipes, you know, it's like, add there to some flour. Yeah. And, like, how much flour? What did you... Yeah, and she did, she was a very instinctive cook. But I suppose when you think that she left school at 13 and was cooking by the time she was 15 and she was a professional chef well into her 70s, by the time you're in your 70s, you've been cooking for that long, you don't need to measure anything anymore. I mean, I'm terrible. I wrote a cookery book last year, year before, year before. And I had to go out and buy teaspoon measurers because I realised how sloppy I'd got in the kitchen with never measuring anything and just instinctively chucking in enough. Partly that's because I did learn from the books that say put there to some flour and therefore I had just added it and, and got to know it. But partly I... I'd cooked these things so much and had learnt to cook so instinctively that it was second nature and and I haven't been cooking for 50 years so I think for her it was so instinctive but certainly I mean British cookery was less technical than French cookery and a lot of those really technical things she would have learnt from Paul and those are exactly the same things that are still taught today so if you go to Escoffier still comes down exactly cuisine classique is what is taught at any of the leading catering colleges because that basis the, the French style cuisine classique is still a basis of an awful lot of cookery and even if you then go on to cook fusion food or American deep south comfort food or whatever it is actually a basis in those techniques will stand you in good stead no matter what you do next right. actually one one eyebrow raise in this is that you Marcel Boudestin 
you know, very big name in cooking, you say, he couldn't cook. No, no. He never cooked. And he suddenly <laughs> set himself up as an authority. He just decided he stuff. could because naturally being a Frenchman, it was in his blood. So of course he could cook even though he'd never been in the kitchen. And I, I have to say, having lived in France, that attitude is not necessarily one that's gone away. But I'm French, of course I can cook. It's not a problem. <laughs> so he just decided he could cook and therefore wrote a cookery book and ran a cookery school and a very successful one because he was plugged in. A lot of the book is about the networks of belonging, both Georgina's networks in terms of working class networks to get jobs and how you get jobs. But also above that, the, the networks that people like Churchill and Clementine Churchill all belong to. And as a servant, once you got plugged into those networks, you could then move around quite easily. So a lot of it is about who you know and where you're, where you go for dinner. So people like Philip Sassoon are absolutely integral to this. He just picks people up in his plane and takes them for dinner when he wants them to. But he knows everybody. So the chances are, although there's little evidence that's solid for this, that Georgina would have cooked for the Churchills back in the Edwardian era because she was cooking for the Hamiltons, who were their mates. And then she would have cooked for other people. So they would have eaten her food, as would Philip Sassoon, as would... You name someone in that social set in the 1930s, they'll all be familiar with Georgina's food because she's cooked for them all. It's just that she doesn't stay very long because she commands high wages and none of them can afford her. Well, this is kind of... It seems me think that P.G. Woodhouse trope, which is, you know, of the aunts always trying to steal each other's yeah, chefs. it's exactly <laughs> that. And because so much goes, I think, unseen, especially in the 1920s and 30s, domestic service, there's a straight narrative of domestic service at that point, is that it peaks at the end of the Victorian era and it goes into decline. But it doesn't. It just changes its nature. So domestic service employs, I think, around 14% of the working female population at the end of the 19th century, but then mainly live-in servants. And then after the First World War... There is a growing issue with girls, and it generally is girls, generally under 20, not wanting to live in anymore. They want freedom. They want to be able to live at home. They want to be able to go out of an evening. They don't want to have to move with the family or put up with terrible accommodation. And the aristocracy, of course, don't see what's wrong with putting their servants in the roof and having three of them in a bed and having no bathroom. It's absolutely fine. But there's a growing movement towards char ladies and people who come in and clean and then go home or cook generals or caterers who come in and work a weekend and go away way and what you find especially with the Churchills who are totally rackety is that people will employ a set of servants say six or something will appear on the census but then there's another six who are coming in as day girls who never ever show up on a census and unless you've got wage books they don't even you can't tell they exist it's very very difficult to get to grips with how domestic service works in that interwar period but it is estimated that once again by 1930 domestic service was again the biggest employer of women because they were being pushed out the jobs they'd had during the first world war they still needed to be employed and because the daily mail ran a very successful campaign suggesting that unemployment benefits shouldn't apply if you were capable of being a servant because it was such a problem for people to get servants so why should women get any form of unemployment benefit if they could because they should go and work as a servant well, some things don't change. <laughs> no, there's a, there's a view still which looks back, I think, very nostalgically. Oh, everybody knew their place. Well, knowing it isn't the same as wanting to have that place. Yeah. And you see that very much in the 30s. Although Georgina did seem to be quite, you know, I mean, you, you describe the very beginning of the book. You know, we hear a lot about erasure and, you know, people's lives and voices being removed. And she's, your very first page, you've got her sort of self-erasing. She writes this memoir and... As it opens, she's it's 1977, she's, what, in her 80s at this stage? She's uh, 90s. 90s. And she's shredding her own memoir. Yeah. 
What? She was totally complicit in her own erasure. The, at that point in time, it was a very, very tense household that she was living in. So she was 94 at that point and had finally written her memoir because lots of people had said, how interesting, you worked with this great man. Because, of course, even by that point, he was this sort of legend. You should write it down. So she did. And then her daughter had what turned out to be terminal cancer. Her son-in-law as well didn't know it, but he would die within another two years. And they were very, very left-wing. Georgina had never been able to talk about her employment with Churchill with her family because they were they were absolutely staunch Labour voters and they held that Churchill was pretty much the devil incarnate, where she was completely the opposite. So they told her that it was pointless, her writing a memoir. No one was going to read it. I mean, no one was interested and Churchill was bad and she'd been a servant, so what was the point? Publishers would not be interested in Churchill. <laughs> no, no, totally. So she, and I suppose as well, most of Churchill's servants did not leave that much. There was a kind of almost, there was a, it was never spoken of as such, but very few of them told stories or wrote memoirs. There was a real idea that you wouldn't publish and you wouldn't talk about it. So she went upstairs and she ripped this memoir into little pieces and was busy pushing them down the plug hole when her granddaughter found her and stopped her. So there's, I think, 20 or so pages of this thing left that only cover the her life from 1882 to about 1895 and her memory even at that point was razor sharp i've gone through what's left and checked it against what we can find out about her life and it's absolutely spot on i mean it's it's very reactionary she puts in bloody foreigners all this kind of thing that you'd expect from somebody who was 94 and writing specifically to challenge her son-in-law's view of the past as being bad so it's quite a politicized memoir yes i mean you you said that the at the time she was writing it there had been a sort of shift in the way that service was being viewed and she wanted to push back against that. Yeah, so. you had obviously had a huge period of service up until the Second World War and then in the 50s it became difficult again to employ servants and at that point you genuinely do start to see the numbers of servants drop. Although it's still quite a significant portion of women are, were still in service right up until the 50s and 60s and then things started to shift and people, instead of employing a nanny, would employ an au pair because it sounded better and service became increasingly stigmatised so those who were of the servant-keeping classes preferred to say, I have a nanny or I have an au pair or I have a cleaner rather than I have a housemaid or I have live-in staff even if actually they were doing similar jobs. You got an awful lot of misery memoirs, I would call them really as well, published in the 60s and the early 70s which were memoirs that were usually ghosted written ostensibly by people who had been in service in the 20s and 30s and a lot of them dwelt on the exploitative aspect of service so housemaids who were there scrubbing floors till their knees bled horrible employers uh, it was an era where service was really problematized i would say people a lot of people inevitably given the number of women in service their grandparents or their parents had been in service and now they didn't really want to think about that. It was not something that was great. You didn't, you didn't want to say, oh, you know, my, my mother was actually a housemaid to this person because now we're all in the modern world. We're all forging forward to the future and we don't want to think about the idea of servitude. So it became really, really quite a bad thing. And then in the late 70s, it sort of started to swing back the other way with things like upstairs, downstairs and the idea that actually servants did have agency and servants had a voice. But she kind of caught that bit in the middle where service was still regarded as something that you really didn't want to think about. And I think she was almost part of this wave of of people like the writers of Upstairs, Downstairs, saying, no, it wasn't all like that. And there had been books, especially introductions to cookery books, that had previously said things like that. Lily MacLeod, I talk about a bit in the book, who was one of Churchill's later cooks, and she also wrote a cookery book, and the introduction to her Published book, almost at the same time, wasn't yes, it? Yes, same year. But it's a much more personal book. Georgina's it has no voice. This is what I mean by she raises herself. So she writes a cookery book where the prose is really terse where there's no introduction by her there's a foreword by lady churchill 
but there's no sense of Georgina's personality at all in Recipes from Number 10. Lily McLeod's book starts with this introduction saying, I really enjoyed my life in service and I look back now and I wonder whether the ghosts that walk the hallways will not be cavaliers and ladies in frocks. It will simply be the mistresses of the households in the 1930s lamenting the fact that the house is full of dust. They shouldn't be seen, I think, as black and white aspects. Service was such a huge employer that to talk about service and say it was all bad or it was all good, it's like saying today, or you work in an office, that must be hell. Or, oh, you work in, uh, in an office, it must be amazing because it's, it's just life at the end of the day. Yeah. Now, the book charts a huge shift. And you know, part of the reason I think it's important to talk about what came the Edwardian and late Victorian cooking and you know, what she grew up with is because actually by the time she meets Churchill, it's very unusual. You know, the whole period of the time she's with Churchill, she's is she nearly 40 when she joins him, I think? Uh, older than that? Well, much older than that. She's, what, she, she's 50 in 1932, so she would be 58 by the time she went to go work for him. Oh, gosh, she's 50, sorry, 58 by the time she goes. No, it's about 1940. She 1940 to, is, well, 1940 before, is when she works permanently. 1940 so she would have been 51 yeah, yeah. by the time she worked for him for the first time for just a, a weekend, one-off job. And yet, you know, when she's, when she's met Churchill, it's just... As rationing has yes. begun, and her entire time cooking with him yes. is under rationing, isn't it? Yes, yeah, she starts, I think, about seven days after rationing first comes in, and she retires about a week before it ends. So it literally charts that fourteen-year period. I mean, she does come back a few times after rationing ends, just as she cooked for him a few times before it began. But yeah, basically, she's cooking for him during the period when British cuisine collapses. Although, of course, he wasn't aware of that because his idea of what the ration was was hazy at best well there's a famous story that comes from her i think isn't there yes about... taking him up the tray of rations when she brought him his breakfast so that he could see what it was and him saying oh it's all right for a day <laughs> yeah it's not a day mr churchill <laughs> what was the importance of food to churchill what you know what did he like well he's an edwardian aristocrat really i think it's very easy to think of churchill as very modern because of course we associate him with the second world war but i mean he was elderly when he became Prime Minister, to put it kindly, and he was every inch the Edwardian aristocrat. So his tastes had been formed in the era of stupid food and lots of aspect. And he did like heavy game. He liked big, for meaty sauces. For, yeah, for breakfast. A really good bit of partridge for breakfast. Or partridge is supposed to be quite light for the stomach, sort of. I suspect it's not quite as light as a nice piece of toast, but anyway. <laughs> so he did like lots of food, and he was, he was never as... As sort of gourmet as Clementine. Clementine Churchill really did know her way around a kitchen, knew her way around cookery books, and certainly was the one that had the exquisite taste when it came to food. food. He loved food and he loved eating, and he also loved drinking. But I think for him, food as much as anything was a tool in this ongoing quest to be what he wanted and thought he should be, which was the greatest Britain that ever lived. So he used food. Uh, as a way of networking. He used dinner parties as a way of gathering people around him. He used it during the war, before the war, as a way of of forging links that were very informal. I mean, obviously, you've got everything recorded in Hansards and you've got the official minutes of various meetings and letters... But then you have people that come to dinner and conversations are had over the port at the end of dinner. And when everyone thinks that they're all a little bit tipsy, so whatever they say, it won't matter anymore. That's when those conversations start to be had. And a really good dinner, one that people will want to come back to, is crucial for that. No one is going to come back to your house if you're serving them baked beans on toast. Now, Churchill, Churchill's relationship with Georgina, I mean, you, as you describe him, you know, you're tactful about the great man, but he didn't pay much attention to 
you know, the first names of his staff or he didn't know who they how were at he treated all. them. He didn't, no. didn't the really tall housemaid. give a toss. Yeah. No, he really didn't. I mean, partly because there were so many of them, because they didn't have any money, because despite being an aristocrat, he was always in debt. You know, if he got an advance for a book, he just spent it five times before they then said, actually, you're getting half of what you're getting and paid him it. So they were reliant on temps and they used all of the employment. I mean, they got, they got blacklisted. blacklisted. <laughs> <laughs> Extraordinary. <laughs> Blacklisted by all the employment agencies in London because they were such bad employers. Clementine lived on a nerve, so she was prone to snap at any minute. He kept very erratic hours and was unbelievably demanding. And those that stuck it out, and there weren't very many, tended, like Georgina, to have very good relationships with the family, I would say, not necessarily with Winston Churchill himself. It's very clear that Georgina had a lot of respect for Winston Churchill and that he knew exactly who she was. I mean, they were by the end of the war, anyone who came to dinner went down to the kitchen to go and say hello, and they all knew her name. So there was a level of respect between Winston and Georgina. It was verging almost on friendship between Clementine and Georgina. I would not go so far as to say they were friends because that huge gulf of class and status was always there. But certainly after Winston Churchill died, Clementine became very, very lonely and she would go over and visit Georgina on quite a regular basis. Georgina would cook chocolate cake and they'd sit and have a chat and that kind of thing. But that's, there's still that gulf. There's still, you can never quite get over employer-employee, not least because Clementine Churchill was paying Georgina's pension, which was paltry. I mean, they paid £2 for the entire time. I think it was £2 a month. Uh, even when the state pension went up, £14.50, £17.50, £20, Georgina's stuck at £2. So the <laughs> plus five pounds at Christmas. That is extraordinary. Uh, and Less what it cost to cook Clemmy chocolate. Well, yes. And I can understand why Georgina's son-in-law was so angry at the fact that he saw that she was being treated really shoddily. All these years of service. And they couldn't even be bothered to pay her a decent pension, despite the fact that, especially after the sale of Chartwell to the nation, Clementine Churchill wasn't short of a bob or two and could have paid this ex-cook of hers a decent wage, given they were quote-unquote friends. Yeah. Though Churchill did save her life. Yes. According to this. That's and that a great certainly extraordinary did happen. Detail. Oh, well, yes, but it's the two versions that are brilliant. Well. His version of the story, they're at Downing Street at this point, and this was when the annex hadn't yet been built. So the annex went in where the Treasury building is now, so really very close to where we're sitting now, and that was a fully armoured apartment for them. But the Cabinet War Rooms was being built, so there was a fully armoured... It wouldn't have survived a direct hit, apparently, but it was a fully armoured bunker for them to go and retreat to. But Churchill was wedded to Downing Street, absolutely. This was the iconic building he had to be in there. So they would cook, obviously, during lots of bombs, as most people in London did. Bombs fell, you heard the sirens, but you kind of made a judgment call. Am I going to the shelter or am I not going to the shelter? And on this occasion, the sirens were going, the bombs were falling. And every night, according to Georgina, Churchill would have to say to her, get down to the shelter. If you don't go down, if Mr Hitler gets you, I won't get my soup, which tells you exactly his motivation. So they're in the kitchen and they're cooking away and she's preparing a mousseline pudding which I've cooked, and it is a beautiful, very light sponge. It's almost like a souffle, but you steam it. And this was for his dinner. And in his version of the story, he misses out the bit about having to tell her every night to go to the shelter. He's suddenly he's upstairs having dinner, and he, is, he suddenly feels this premonition. So he rushes to the kitchen and begs the kitchen staff, who are all cooking without turning a hair, to get down to the shelter. 
In her version, she says what he has to do every night. And he did come in and I was a bit worried about this mousseline pudding because I couldn't have turned it out. Either way, they all go down to the shelter and a bomb falls about 10 metres away from Downing Street, shatters this 20-foot plate glass window that's behind where they're working. And they all go back up again. And he says, I I saved her life. And she says, the kitchen was covered with rubble. It was a real nightmare. (laughs) So, But she also said he certainly saved her life because this window had just imploded into the kitchen and covered the whole place with plate glass. So certainly if she hadn't died, she would have been very severely injured. It would have saved Um, them a pension anyway. Well, it would have done, yeah. Also, did I... Am I reading right that he actually credited her in his VE Day speech? Not in the speech. He gave the speech up on the Ministry of Health balcony and she characteristically missed it because she was cooking but was persuaded to come up at the end inside the building. So she was there at the back of the crowd. He gave the speech, everyone cheered. He turns away from the balcony, comes back, catches a glimpse of her, rushes over and shakes her hand and said, I couldn't have done this without you and then took her onto the balcony to show her the crowds. And she, in tears, said to one of the secretaries at the time, it wasn't the crowds that got me. It was those words that meant so much to me. And part of me thinks, oh, that's amazing. And part of me is really angry that, therefore, she's not given more recognition by history and and by everyone, really, by authors, certainly, but also by Churchill himself, because that was what she felt she was worth, a few words from this this man. So I'm very torn. Was there a, did you sort of embark on this book in a sense? I mean, were you thinking this is a way of telling the story about how food and culture and society changed through the two wars? Or yes. was it a sort of act of restitution for Georgina? It I mean, became an act of restitution. I started off a bit when I wrote the when I wrote the Greedy Queen. I wanted to talk about Victorian food. So having written that, I thought actually twentieth century food and domestic service, I think, is an area that's really interesting and very. Sort of misunderstood, especially the domestic service aspect. And I was riffling through an archive, desperately trying to come up with an idea, and found Georgina's cookery book, Recipes from Number 10, and thought, oh, it's amazing, but someone would have written about her. Quite clearly, she's such a key figure. And then no one had. So I thought, what a brilliant idea. Okay, she's got this incredibly long life. She should be easy to write about. I was wrong in that bit. And I can tell the story of changing foodways and also domestic service through this woman. And also there's a clear hook in the shape of Winston Churchill, who is interesting in and of himself because he's a a real foodie. What a great idea. And as I wrote it and as I realised how much she's been... I mean, she was named in a document of 1940, one of only 11 people who was supposed to be taken out of London with Churchill in the case of a German invasion. That's how crucial she was to the household. But if she crops up in any biographies, even the really, really modern ones, there was one published a couple of years ago, and if you look, and it's huge this day. Yes. And you look in the back of it, and there are two mentions of Georgina, and it's he shakes her hand on V-Day, and it's he saves her life from the bombs, which of course is in his own book. Andrew Roberts even gives the rationing tray story to a man, says that someone went out and was commissioned to go and make the ration out of papier-mâché and show it to him on a tray. This at a point when paper was also rationed. It doesn't <laughs> quite ring true. And Georgina, this is one of the few stories Georgina would tell. So it's absolutely bonkers how she's been erased. So as I wrote the book, I became more and more angry about this over-concentration on Winston Churchill himself when as interesting a figure as he is and as crucial a figure as he is he's not the only really crucial figure in British history and he certainly couldn't have done any of what he did without a massive support network even Clementine, his wife, has been really neglected and then you've got his family you've got all these secretaries you've got a huge support network and it's very, very clear when you read 
about Georgina and about Winston Churchill and Clementine Churchill's relationship with her, that she was as crucial as anyone to whatever went on in the war and to all the decisions that were being made and to all of the successful policy making that went on. So I did, by the end of it, become really quite angry. Good. Team Georgina. Is there any evidence also that Churchill himself ever ate a Walton pie? I suspect he would have run a mile from a Walton pie, so <laughs> no, I don't think he even appeared in the publicity for it. Lord Walton obviously ate the Walton pie. It was created by a chef at the Savoy, Landry, I think his name was, but no, I mean, Walton pie is pretty vile. I don't know if you've ever eaten one. No, I've, I've seen photographs you and have read to about put a lot thought, of marmite oh, I don't in it. want to cook that. <laughs> don't do it, just don't do it. I saw a version recently which was uh, someone was saying, it's brilliant for vegan annuary, this absolutely amazing pie, you can cook this, it's just potatoes and root vegetables, amazing. And I read the recipe and I thought, that's not Walton pie though that's got flavour it's got spice it's got herb it's got really interesting this what you've cooked is a vegetable pie what Lord Walton put together or what the chef chef at the Savoy put together under Lord Walton's name that's not really anything other than you know desperation in a bowl it's just horrible right well we'll end on that wise piece of advice and (laughs) Gray thanks very much for your time thank you Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it. If you hated it, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening. And please join us for our next episode. <laughs>